Hello and welcome to NC State's Audio Abstract. I'm your host, Tracy Peak. Volcanoes are fascinating and powerful drivers of change on Earth. Ariana Soldati, a volcanologist and assistant professor of marine, earth, and atmospheric sciences at NC State, explains what they do, why they're important, and how scientists try to keep people out of harm's way when they erupt. Welcome, Ariana. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me on the podcast today. I'm very happy you could be here because I love volcanoes. So this is going to be very exciting for me. Um, but let's start, you know, with the basics about volcanoes. How do these form and, you know, why do they erupt? What's going on? So let's start with what is a volcano, right? Uh, a volcano is a place on Earth where some partially molten material makes it to the surface. Now on Earth, this partially molten material is rock and we call it lava once it gets to the surface. And this happens in a bunch of different places on Earth, but they are not random places. They are places where um, the plates that make up the crust come together or drift apart. And then there's also some volcanoes that happen right in the middle of a plate. And that is because material from the mantle, uh, the middle layer of the earth, rises up and gets all the way to the surface. But the reason why we only have volcanoes in these special places and not everywhere is that um, contrary to maybe what we picture sometimes, the crust of the earth is not just floating on top of a magma ocean. Uh, everything inside the mantle is solid. There's only these specific places, typically where plates come together or drift apart, um, where the mantle can actually melt. And once it has molten, partially, it starts rising because it's less dense, it's a liquid. And so it makes its way to the surface. But it is sort of an obstacle run. It is actually really, really difficult for magma to get all the way to the surface and into a volcano and out onto uh, the surface of our planet where we can see it. the vast majority of magma that we produce never makes it quite that far. And it gets stuck at different places inside the crust of the earth and it solidifies over there and we never get to see it. Well, well then I guess I'm glad about that because otherwise there would just be magma everywhere all the time if it were easy for it to get here, right? That's right. So then if it's difficult for it to, you know, get to the surface, what actually will cause a volcano to sort of build up and erupt with lava? Sometimes there's just the right conditions. So for example, we can have um, magma that is not very dense and not very viscous. And so it can move through the crust swiftly. And then when it gets close enough to the surface, what happens is that the gas that is dissolved within it starts coming out and making bubbles. And those bubbles make the magma much lighter and they push it all the way to the surface. And this is a very easy mechanism to visualize. It's the same thing that opens, that happens. It is the same thing that happens when you open um, a can or a bottle of, of soda or other fizzy drink. All the bubbles dissolve, exhaled, come out, and they propel the liquid to the surface. The same thing happens with the magma. A lot of people still live near 
these active volcanoes. Do we know how many active volcanoes there are on Earth right now? Just as an aside. Ooh, yes. So we have about 500 volcanoes on Earth that we consider to be active. And those are the volcanoes that, uh, not just the ones that are erupting right now, but also the ones that have had eruptions uh, in the past 10,000 years or so. Because volcanoes can have these very, very long repose periods where they're not erupting, but they still could be erupting potentially. So we still consider those active. Um, and at any given time on Earth, there's about 20 that are actually having an eruption. I know that you said, you know, you consider a volcano active if it's not erupted within 10,000 years. That's kind of a lot. How do volcanologists sort of determine, you know, when a volcano was last active and when it may be getting closer to an eruption? Right. So for volcanoes that have erupted throughout human history in areas that are and were populated, um, we often have some kind of historic records, but that's only the last few thousands of years, of course. Uh, to go further back in time, we actually do radiometric dating with potassium and argon typically for volcanic rocks. And so we are able to determine when the last eruption occurred. And then we also look at other things such as um, that tectonic setting. So uh, as long as a volcano is still right at the location where the plates are um, moving apart or coming together, there's probably the chance for new magma to form underneath it and make it to the surface. So that volcano would still be active. If instead enough time has gone by, that the volcano ends up being uh, at a location that it's nowhere near close, a plate boundary, then there's really not the, the likelihood that new magma will form and come to the surface and we will have um, a new eruption. Okay. And for the ones that we have designated, you know, active and people live near, um, how good are you guys at predicting when these things are going to erupt? And how do you do that? <laughs> right. So we definitely try to monitor active volcanoes, uh, focusing on the ones that are most active, that erupt more frequently, and also that are surrounded by um, large um, communities. So for example, you know, Mount Vesuvius in Italy um, has a lot of people that live on its flanks, and so it is densely monitored. Um, Mount St. Helens is a famous volcano. There's not necessarily a lot of people that live nearby, but there's a lot of tourism. So that volcano is also heavily monitored. Um, other volcanoes that are in more remote areas, such as Alaska, you know, some of them are more monitored for scientific reasons. We're really interested in trying to figure out what's going on, but then some are really far out of reach and no one really um, lives as close to them. So they will have less sensors on them. And there's a bunch of different kinds of sensors. So uh, we have seismometers and those help us um, pick up on magma that might be rising. So when magma rises in the volcanic conduit, it does a couple of things. So the first one is it might create fractures and shocks and those are picked up by the seismometers and it's because you know it's rising up there may or may not be a good path maybe the the path of the conduit 
um, got closed off during the latest eruption because the magma cooled down in there and it plugged it. And so now if it wants to come up, it needs to make cracks and fractures to, to make its own way up. Um, and then we also, the, the other thing that happens when, when magma rises up is that it inflates the volcano. It makes it balloon, if you will, um, because you know there's more material that's, that's coming up and it's pushing the mountain upwards. Um, and we can also pick up on that with GPS sensors. Um, there are linked to satellites. So a satellite will shoot down a signal uh, and the GPS receiver will get it and shoot it back and we can measure how long it takes for the signal to travel. And so even if we have a very small inflation, a millimeter, we are able to pick up on that, which is amazing. So we can see a volcano shake and inflate as magma rises up. And then um, we can also check out gas composition because as we were saying earlier, when this magma rises, gases starts to exult, to make bubbles. Um, and this happens at different depths, depending on what gas. So the most common volcanic gas is actually just water vapor. But we also have uh, CO2, carbon dioxide, and we have sulfur. And those all exolve at different depths. So if we can collect some of the gas that's coming out at the vent and we can analyze, we can tell how deep or how shallow the magma is more or less. So we'll be able to see um, if it's rising. Now, this is not an exact science, eruptions do occur even at heavily monitored volcanoes without scientists being able to, um, to pick up on that before it happens. And this might depend on, you know, location of the sensor with respect to the, the path that the magma is taking to rise up. Uh, sensors, you know, uh, they are uh, not functioning all the time. They can be broken in repair. There can be um, uh, a battery that is out. All of these things happen, unfortunately. But we have been getting better and better at predicting eruptions, and there's definitely a number of success stories. Mount St. Helens is the first one. We definitely knew that something was happening. We were able to evacuate the national forest and this definitely saved a lot of lives. Uh, the same thing happened with the Pinatubo eruption in the Philippines in 1991. Um, and actually there's a, there's a good uh, collaboration going on between the geologic observatory in the Philippines and the USGS here in the US. And they were able to tell that the volcano was about to erupt. And again, they were able to evacuate a lot of people. And especially with something like Mount St. Helens, usually when you think of a volcano erupting, you think of, you know, all these dramatic pictures, the night sky and the lava shooting up into the air. And it's really cool. Mount St. Helens just basically exploded yes. out of the side. Can you talk a little bit about what made that one so different or certain ones like that where it's not so much just lava kind of pouring down out of an active volcano, but just blowing out an entire half of a mountain or a volcano instead. Yeah, so this definitely does happen. And uh, Mount St. Helens is an example of what we call a lateral blast. And the um, eruption had several stages. It was very interesting how it got triggered. Basically, we did have some magma that was rising up um, and there was an earthquake. And this earthquake, 
triggered a landslide on the north side of, of the volcano. Now, this landslide was very, very large. And so what happened is that all of a sudden there was a lot less rock on top of the magma that was rising. And so there was a lot less pressure keeping the magma down. And it was all on one side, it was all on the north flank. And so the magma that was rising and it was under pressure because of all of the gases that were absorbing, it went in that direction and, and it blew to the side. So it's just going to find the path of least resistance. Yes, right? absolutely. This is a really good way to describe it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Great. Um, so when these volcanic eruptions happen, like with Mount St. Helens, and it blasted all of this ash and debris into the air, and it was terrible, do these things affect climate, like short and long term? Yes. Volcanoes definitely have an influence on climate, and there's, um, it's a very, it, it's complicated the way in which this happens, because you have short-term effects and long-term effects. So in the short term, what you can observe is cooling, and this is because you're going to have a lot of ash particles in the atmosphere, and so this just kind of mechanically block out the sun, so there's less sun rays that reach the surface of the earth and the surface cools down. In the long term, however, you can have warming and this depends on the finer particles and the gases that are emitted. Um, specifically, sulfur dioxide does this. And um, this can trap some of the uh, infrared radiation that reaches to the surface in the lower atmosphere. And so this can cause an increase in temperature. But um, it's the really large eruptions that do this. So something like Mount St. Helens, I know it looks really, really large, but it's not large enough to affect the climate, actually. Um, we, we're, we're thinking about you know, the lucky eruption in Iceland or the Tambora eruption in Indonesia, like really orders of magnitude larger than any eruption we have witnessed, um, you know, certainly in the course of, of, our, of our lifetime. Uh, and then the other interesting thing that has an effect on weather and how much volcanoes influence climate is where the volcano is. If the volcano is closer to the equator, it has a higher chance of affecting the climate than if it is closer to the poles. And this depends on uh, circulation patterns in the atmosphere and where those particles will be dragged. Okay, and how long do these particles, you know, sort of persist in the atmosphere before they settle out? Uh, they can linger for years. Uh, ash, you know, is usually only a few days to uh, a few weeks, but they're really, really fine ones. And the gases, it, it can be a couple of years or even more. Wow. Um, and there was another phenomenon that people talk about when they talk about volcanic eruptions, volcanic lightning. Is that, how does that work? That's kind of cool. Yeah, so volcanic lightning is super cool. And actually um, some of the people who work on that are colleagues from where I did my postdoc in, in Munich. Um, so volcanic lightning occurs in volcanoes that have explosive eruptions where you have this ash column that develops. So an ash column is a lot of ash particles 
that are squeezed tightly together and rub against each other. And this creates friction and friction leads to electric charging. And so when you have positive and negative charges, you can have current going through, you can have a discharge and this is volcanic lightning. And it's a phenomenon that we've only started paying attention to um, in recent years. Now that we started paying attention to it, we are seeing it over and over again at most volcanoes that have um, ash columns. That's really neat. So it's almost like static electricity from walking across a carpet, but except if you're a volcano. The most fascinating thing to me about volcanoes is just the lava. Lava coming out, lava doing lava things. Lava's great. Um, I guess unless you're in the path of it. But so how fast does lava really move? I grew up watching all of these disaster movies, you know, in, in the 70s and 80s to date myself a little bit. And, um, you know, it was always people like running, screaming out of these giant waves of lava. But in real life, how fast does that stuff go? Like, what's the actual danger from lava? That you're going to get run over by a wave of lava or that it's just going to burn everything down around you? that it's going to burn down everything around you. Uh, so lava typically does not flow very fast. We're talking maybe about half a kilometer per hour. So you don't even need to outrun it. You can just outwalk it. Uh, the problem is that your property can't. Um, so the, the main hazard from lava flows is that, you know, it destroys everything in its path. There is pretty much no way to stop or divert it. And so people can move out, but we are not able to save their property. I think what a lot of people don't realize is that lava is hot rock. So it has an enormous strength, an enormous pressure. So when it's coming at you, there's like, there's really no structure. There's really nothing that can stand up to it. Now that said, um, there have been a few exception of really fast lava flows that have been dangerous to people as well. Um, particularly, uh, there's been an eruption in 1977 of Mount Niragongo in Africa, um, where lava flows came down the flanks of the volcano at 60 kilometers per hour. Now, that is something that we cannot outrun. Uh, and unfortunately, the eruption uh, did kill a lot of people, uh, also because it happened unexpectedly and in the middle of the night. Um, the reason why those lava flows were so fast is that the lava from that volcano is very, very fluid. And also it was coming down from a lava lake. So there was the pressure of the lake emptying down and pushing it down to the side, like if you uh, make a hole at the bottom of a water bottle. Um, but we normally don't see anything, uh, anything that fast. What got closest to it was a 2018 eruption of Kilauea in Hawaii that you may remember. Um, and that was about 30 kilometers per hour, but you know, uh, we did a great job evacuating people in time. So fortunately no one was injured um, by the lava flows in that case. Although unfortunately a lot of property was lost. Yeah, that is a shame, but at least no one got hurt. And the other thing about lava is, you know, it's flowing like a liquid, but it's not really the same as a liquid. If you stepped on lava, would you fall in or would you just sort of 
skate across the surface, catch on fire, and die horribly that way? Like, what would happen? Yeah, pretty much what you described. So, um, yeah, lava is rock. Even when it's flowing, it is not really liquid. It is partially molten, but there's a lot of crystals in there um, that are solid and form a network. So it is it is really, it feels solid. Definitely, you know, having sampled active lava flows, you, like, it, it's not like scooping up some, some water. You have to hammer it pretty hard to, to get a piece out. Um, so, you know, if you were to step on a lava flow, you would just step on it. You know, it would sustain your weight for sure. You would, however, yes, catch on fire very rapidly. Lava flows are really hot. We're at over a thousand degrees Celsius. So, you know, um, more than twice what your oven at home can do. Um, and that would not be a pleasant experience. So how do you guys get samples of this stuff? Like if it's a thousand, you know, a thousand degrees Celsius, um, how can you get close enough to it to actually, you know, sort of break off a piece of a lava flow? Two strategies. Uh, either you wear a full uh, heat resistant suit, like a typical uh, silvery volcanology suit that you see in the movies. Uh, and now that's great. However, those things are real heavy and bulky. And so if you're hiking up to a lava flow for six hours, you're probably not taking one of those with you because you know you also need to be taking a lot of water and the rock samples you collect and your hammer and food and flashlights and uh, so the, the suit is probably not going to make the final packing list so what you do instead is you're quick so you wear long sleeve cotton um, clothes and you get close for a second you hammer it as hard as you can you step back and uh, you try not to look because your eyes are kind of like the most delicate um, part of your body that's going to be exposed. You're, you're going to be wearing goggles while you do that, of course, but still you're going to be able to feel that heat. So you just kind of like get close, hammer it, step back, and then recover that sample. What is it like being close to a lava flow? Oh, that's my favorite thing to talk about uh, because, you know, we, we see these images of, of lava on TV and they're, they're beautiful, they're fascinating, but being close to one, it's a, a multi-sensorial experience, really. Uh, the, the heat is the first thing that, that you feel. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. It, you know, it's like standing in, in front of an incredibly hot oven. So there is this dry hot hair that comes at you and um, you know the first time I saw uh, a lava flow I was doing field work and I um, I did sampling and then I wanted to have a picture taken in front of the lava flow and there's this picture of me smiling in front of the flow but I'm actually in horrible pain from the heat coming at my back and I it, it was a you know smile click run away sort of thing um, and then the other thing that's interesting is the sound. So lava makes a, a clinky sound 
um, when it flows, because on the on the sides you have these these pieces that start solidifying, and what lava is really is volcanic glass. So as you step on it, you're gonna like hear it crack under your boots. So it's like stepping on glass. It is also very cutty, so you you have to be careful of that. Um, and as it flows, it also makes this 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 clinky, glassy sound. So that's that's also something interesting that I I didn't really think about until I got to hear it for the first time. That's amazing. Yeah, I wouldn't think I wouldn't think about that either. And finally, what is the coolest fact about volcanoes or lava that you know? Your favorite thing. So my favorite thing about volcanoes is that they are actually the makers of land. Volcanoes create new emerged land for us to walk on. So entire islands such as Hawaii would not exist if it wasn't for volcanoes. And these islands keep expanding even nowadays. So the 2018 eruption of, of Kilauea actually added about a square, uh, half a square kilometer of land to the coastline of Hawaii. And that is land where eventually the vegetation is going to grow and it's going to become stable and it is part of the island. So volcanoes are the only geologic phenomenon that can actually expand our um, land borders and give us new land to walk on. And it's, it's amazing to be, you know, the first person to walk on a fresh lava flow because that is literally earth that was not there up until the day before. So in a way, volcanoes are really the last frontier of human exploration because they push the, the boundaries of what is there for us to explore. That is really cool. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Ariana. I think we learned a lot about volcanoes. I know I did. And now I would like to one day get close to a lava flow, but maybe not super close, just to listen to it, I think, if nothing else. I definitely encourage everyone to go visit a volcano. There's several in the world that are less dangerous than most, where um, Tourists often choose to, to go and visit and can witness uh, lava flows. And it is really um, a primordial experience to be that close to volcanoes. They're kind of like the sign that our planet is alive and being there and being able to, to witness and, and feel that is, is definitely um an experience to have once in a lifetime. So thank you so much, Tracy, for giving me the chance to talk about my favorite subject. We've been speaking today with Ariana Soldati, a volcanologist and assistant professor of marine, earth, and atmospheric sciences here at NC State. This has been Audio Abstract. I'm your host, Tracy Peake. Thank you so much for listening.